0: Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, Today, I'm in conversation with uh, Professor Sarah Lamb to talk about her incredible book, Being Single in India. Um, uh, Welcome, Professor Lamb. It's such a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So maybe as is tradition at NBN, if I could just start off by asking how you became an anthropologist. So your intellectual and personal biography that got you into the discipline and so many years of research that you've spent doing um, in anthropology, um, we'd love to hear more.
1: Yes, I um, in college, I took a few anthropology classes, but I didn't major in anthropology. I was actually a religious studies major. But I was doing it in a kind of anthropological way. I was really curious about different people's worldviews and how they have such strong convictions. And in some religious traditions, they think they're the only right ones, and everyone else might be going to hell or not being saved or something. And I, so I was interested in exploring a range of um, religious traditions as a way to understand people really. Um, And then I realized that anthropology would allow me to do research talking with people and hanging out with them, whereas religious studies you focus mostly on texts usually. So I um, got inspired to go to study anthropology in graduate school.
0: And how has your understanding of anthropology changed over the years? Um, How is it different from what you came to anthropology, you know, the vision with which you came to anthropology and how has your understanding changed over the years? Well,
1: my the things I have always been most interested in seem to be fairly consistent, but the discipline itself has evolved and changed. I mean, we've gotten anthropology much more aware and critically aware of um, some a lot of colonial roots in anthropology. Anthropology started with mostly white men studying like non-Western others or so-called primitive people. Um, And uh, so when I first started in graduate school, there was less critical awareness of that past. And then we became very, you know, self-conscious about that. Um, And also earlier, uh, there was an emphasis on understanding major things like social structures or cultural holes, social systems, but I I couldn't find the people. And I was interested in people and their stories, um, differences, Uh, people like single women who don't fit into the mainstream in India. Um, And so I was sort of bothered by some of the earlier trends in anthropology, but I, from the beginning, was always interested in meeting individuals, people, their stories, just trying to understand what life makes, how life makes sense to them, Um, using it as a tool to respect people and differences um, and so that's remained consistent with me and i love it i mean it's wonderful to be able to do research out of the library hanging out with people in diverse places um both in the united states and in india
0: so then how if we could um, also hear more from you about how you came to the research topic of this book. Um, and you write about this in the book, and there's something, there is a kind of simultaneous strangeness and naturalization of what it means to be married or single in India. But um, I'm curious to hear from you why, what drew you to the subject and how you began to conceptualize uh, this research project. Yeah, so I, for
1: years, I've focused my research on aging and still that's my main specialty. That's what I'm known for. Um, And I just came back from a really interesting research trip in Arkansas here in the U.S. with older people, um, which was really interesting. But I've done a lot of my work in India over the years for like three decades going and doing field work there, mostly focusing on aging. But in the um, process of studying aging, I had met really quite a lot of never-married single women. I mean, some were older, like 90, 85. Some were living in these so-called old-age homes, uh, which is a place where never-married women sometimes aspire to go to because it's a way to receive care in old age if you don't have kids or close kin. Um, and then I had two research assistants over the years who didn't marry, and they had pursued MA degrees, one a PhD degree, and helped me with my research, And we're really happy with their lives. I mean, they were glad that they didn't marry. They had chosen not to marry. And um, but then so I started getting interested in the topic of of single women, uh, because also I had also been studying um, what happens to older people themselves when they don't live conventional family lives so my, one of my second books focused on old people who either lived alone independently, maybe their kids were abroad or they were moving into these new retirement homes, old age homes. Uh, so I was interested in people who lived beyond conventional family lives. So single women fit into that. Um, but when I would mention to many Bengalis um, in India that oh, I'm interested in unmarried women, they would say like, what are there unmarried women in our society No like are there no everyone has to get married especially men would tell me this like that's a weird research topic um and like oh if there are single women it's just their parents failed to get them married that's it you know nothing more to study you know or like in villages there never would be any unmarried women so it was like a puzzle like i want to prove them wrong and i had been meeting some unmarried women so i just it was kind of a side project of mine for many years but i Then I began to be even more excited about it than my aging research for a while. And I really, really loved just trying to find more. It was kind of a mystery and a puzzle. Find more unmarried women and gather their stories, um, why they didn't marry. And I found that their ideas um, and experiences really shed light on a lot of interesting things going on in the wider Indian society. So it wasn't just about being single but you know about gender sexuality marriage kinship <clears throat> aims of life things like that you know at new education opportunities social change it was really a, a wonderful way to um as, as a lens to get into understanding other things about indian society in general and also uh, marriage rates are going down around the world so it's not a trend only in india it's a it's an interesting phenomenon to study everywhere really
0: What I really enjoyed about the book uh, is that it starts with this question of why and takes this kind of nosy social curiosity and also a kind of like social, you know, like impolite social imposition and turns it into such a productive analytical frame that then structures the whole book. And I mean, maybe if you want to speak a little bit more about that. And I thought that was so interesting because it starts with this curiosity, which is not which may not be that sort of, it's not an intellectual one. It's just something to, you know, dismiss something as an anomaly, but then you stick with it and you go to the end and then it becomes such an interesting and such an intellectually productive exercise.
1: Well, I'm glad you found it that way. It's true. There is just this yeah, nosy curiosity about why that I had. And then other people would ask me too, when they heard about the research, that would be one of their key questions like, Oh, why, why aren't they married? You know, why, why? Um, <clears throat> And I did find that I, I couldn't, I didn't want to just simply ask that question if I met a single woman um, right at the beginning, because it seems a little bit rude. They've been getting that their whole lives. Um, and everyone says, why didn't you marry? Why didn't marriage happen to you? It's often phrased in the passive. Why, why didn't? Your marriage happened. Um, And I get so irritated and confused having to answer that question over and over. So I would try not to directly ask it usually, but I would learn all their reasons over time. And if I got to know someone well and they became kind of a friend and I hung out with them a lot, they would open up a lot to me. Um, But it's true. The question about why ended up being a productive lens to understand all sorts of other things. I mean, and the most obvious reason why that you hear about in public media and Indian newspapers celebratory new books about single women there are a few of those that exist um that focus mainly on the elite but they their reason for why is always it's a choice a simple choice you know I made a choice and um I found that though for many people the idea of choice is very meaningful to them and and they and I can't say they did make a choice not to marry and I want to respect, I mean, it's wonderful if people feel like they can have a choice in life to do things or not do things. Um, But I found that for most people, the choice was too simple on its own. You know, and that's true for any situation in any society that we're always very much constrained by complicated social forces, cultural norms, you know, socioeconomic issues, you know, class, caste, all those things. gender norms so we, 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 most none of us are truly free to make easy choices and so um yeah i use the question of why to understand some of those kinds of constraints those forces impinging on people's lives to make choice um you know usually not that easy
0: yeah 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 that's so true um I also wanted to make one more observation, which is, uh, I mean, in how you analytically framed the study, uh, I found that it was so productive to position it in the queer studies literature. And because um, it's so productive to think of uh, queering as a process of Thinking of what is external to heteronormativity, and uh, that's productive in analyzing your own material, but it also sort of pushes um, the scope of queer studies in a very important way. Um, and I know that later you also credit um, conversations with your students uh, that sort of pushed you in this direction. So I was, I was, I wanted to hear more about your about your journey of uh, of of placing the study in that in that body of literature.
1: Yeah. um, So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that theme. I ended up finding it productive. I, um, yeah, so in conversations with students, um, because I teach uh, gender studies, I include a a lot of queer studies in, in my gender studies class. So, um, and I always learn a lot from my students and I remember one master's student in particular who was like, Oh, your project, you know, your single women project is so interesting and it really fits in with queer studies in these ways. And I, at first would feel sort of self-conscious. I'd say, well, I don't have that many people in my study who identify as queer or in my this case, lesbian was the main, I had some key lesbian interlocutors, participants, but majority, um, didn't really identify as a particular sexuality, but sort of unspoken heterosexual. Actually, a lot of them had crushes on guys, and you know would identify as heterosexual if I had asked them to label themselves. Um, so I felt, you know, a lot of the work in queer studies, um, folk and anthropology, focuses specifically on people who identify themselves as queer, LGBTQ plus often. Um, Just like earlier work in gender studies, there was sort of this pressure, oh, it should focus on women, really, and not, you know, men, or now we realize, oh, men are an important part of gender studies. So I... um, yeah, he was like, Oh, this really fits in. I read stuff. I'm like, yes. I mean, if, if, if a lot of what we define at the core of queer studies is externality to heteronormativity, then these women in various kinds of ways are external to that in many ways, like, you know, the heteronormative marriage, um, people have trouble often recognizing them where how legible they are, where they fit into social categories or not, you know, if you're not married, but you're an adult, what's what's up with that? Um, and uh so so yeah i thought the queer studies lens was really useful for me and also i mentioned a little bit in the book critical heterosexuality studies it's kind of a little bit of a growing field but just to use people's perspectives to critique heterosexuality and that's also seemed to be going on in the women's stories
0: yeah but here even as their um uh choices on on, um, how life is shaped even Sorry, even as how their lives are shaped by choice or circumstance can be sort of not um, uh, a kind of classical heteronormative family model. Uh, but for a lot of these women, especially those who, you know, the, the, these women, your informants who had crushes on guys, their mm-hmm. desire and their imaginations are still very much cast in a heteronormative model.
1: That's true. I'm
0: curious how you kind of fit the two together then okay. Yes. But right. it's, you know, it's not, it's not,
1: it's not, simple. So uh, some of it definitely fits into a heteronormative model in terms of, um, women's desires. Even many of them say, I still wish I could marry. Um, actually one of my key interlocutors in the book whose story I tell Nayani, she just got married actually, um, a few weeks ago. And I, you know, I was invited, but I couldn't go. It was like, I wish I could have gone. It was, you know, far away and we're still having this pandemic. Um, she right now seems really happy. I got all the videos and everything. Um, I hope it'll work out. You know, I'm nervous about marriage in general and for someone is like her, <laughs> um, I hope it'll work out, but yeah, so she, but she really, she really wanted it. She achieved it. You know, she's like 40, it's late and she's getting this dressed up all on her, sorry, and getting gifts and, um, uh, and she's proud to have achieved this kind of heteronormative status. But um I'd say that uh, for me, um, you know, being external to heteronormativity doesn't only have to do with, let's say, your sexual desire, but if you're if if people in society are thinking you of as other. So if you haven't achieved marriage, heterosexual marriage basically as an adult woman in India, then many people in society will think of you as other, not having a quote unquote normal life um, not reproducing. Um, so, so it goes beyond just sexuality. And also the thing is you're not engaged. Many more of the women in my study that I talked to weren't engaging in sexual relations with anyone. So that's a sort of a queer thing too, whether it's their choice or not. So they're not being sexually active, not having kids, they are not getting married. Um, so even if they don't conventionally fit into an Easy label like either L or G or B or T or Q or something. It's not they're they're outside of normal so, so-called normal heteronormative relations in their society, um, and from that lens of externality, they're able to see a lot. I mean, I was so inspired. I loved talking with so many of the women from all different social classes who were able to. Um, critique their society, you know, say, oh, you know, society does this and society does that. And I don't like that about, you know, society and uh, express these feminist perspectives, even if they didn't always label themselves feminist. And I just, I loved their um, passionate words of critique and insight. Hmm.
0: But in this one thing that I found quite striking was that you're um, uh, in your in your in in how you define single women uh both methodologically and analytically you are looking at never married women But there are also so many sort of resonances with women who are in fake fraud marriages or abandoned soon after marriage. Um, And I was curious to hear from you what you think is similar and different, because there is something about gaining the the socially legitimate identity of being married, even if then it doesn't work out. But their experiences could be very similar to the never married. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about this kind of dividing line um, that is qu- quite strict in the book, um, and uh, I mean, I, I, I think it's very productive. But I, I was still curious about how how, how it gets blurred.
1: Yeah, um, I, it wouldn't have to have been so strict, but since you can't write about everything, and anyway, I, and I thought it was. I decided that it was productive to to, to look at the experiences of people who were never married because um, I had done a lot of research before with widows, and um, you know they. Experience some of the same, often depending on their situation. Let's say loneliness or stigma or so society pressuring them to remain asexual. So some some similar things, um, but yet they're understood. They're they're like legitimate. They're legible in society. People they followed a normal path. They got married, and then actually the majority of women do become a widow at some age in India because they tend to marry older men and things like that. So it's like, it's a very common status being abandoned in things might be less common, but yet still, I know um, women who were abandoned or only married for two weeks and then moved back to their parents. And I might've mentioned one of these women in the book and had two kids, you know, by a man who was not her husband, but because she can still present herself as a married woman wearing the sindoor in her hair and, you know, married women's bangles and things. And she is married She can pass as fitting in okay, and she can have these kids. Um, So although I'd say I don't want to say that never married single women um, don't share anything with these other categories of women, um, I I think it's really interesting to look at what happens if they haven't gone through this life stage that people, so many people um, in India and around the world think is so important for women, especially for men too, actually. Um, you know, to get married. Um, And so that's why I focused on the never married single women. And I just didn't know of any other, I mean, there are hardly any other studies of them. And there's tons of studies on widows, for instance. Um, so
0: actually, yes, it is so interesting because it's amazing that uh, even if their experiences of everyday life are shared with other women who are experiencing loneliness or uh, loneliness or stigma, uh, but their case still remains quite unique. So, a, a widow or somebody who's been abandoned will be seen as as unfo- it'll be seen as unfortunate, but not an anomaly. And yeah,
1: way putting it. Yes.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. So to move, you know, your experiences can be unfortunate and painful. But when are you again external to the heteronormative model? And Mm -hmm. that's that's so interesting um, and important. Uh, But yeah, sorry, please go ahead. One of
1: my main, um, sort of my best friends in the book, one of the main uh, persons who runs throughout the book, Maida. I call her. Um, Yeah, she says like I have had to fight with hostility throughout my life as not being considered a normal person. And I'd say that is one theme that runs out. Yeah. People might pity the abandoned woman or the widowed woman, but they, they're understood. They, they're normal in many ways. Um, and, but many people just don't understand the single woman. And, and frankly, even though, you know, I, it's an important thing to study. It's still, there's still only very few, I think less than 1% of, um, women in India are never married. So it's, it's a, it's a, phenomenon that's getting more attention in the media you know india today had a big cover story on brave new women the single woman um and it is growing i think it's increasingly possible and more visible but it's still only a small number of of people
0: Yeah. And um, you mentioned men, and I'm sure you get this question a lot. Um, uh, And what about the single men? And for me, what was quite interesting is because in your research, you talk in these very nuanced ways about what choice means and not. Uh, It's interesting because the literature, and not just the academic literature, the popular debate around single men gets caught up so much in the incel debates where choice is understood in a very different way. Um, So I was curious how, how you put the two together.
1: Yeah, that's a nice question. Yeah, it's, it's true. The incel debates, that's the whole idea that the men are feeling like they don't have any choice. They're in involuntarily celibate. You know, they don't have any choice. They they should. They should be able to have women, but the women don't like them or the women are too feminist or, yeah. Um, and in India too, it's true. I know a lot of um, young men or parents of young men, especially in rural areas, who feel like they—that uh, th- th- these men don't have a choice, that they're being forced to remain single partly because of unemployment, so this idea that uh, girls and their parents only want to marry a well-employed man these days, and the girls have more choices than they used to because some of them are getting more education, and so, you know, how will I ever get my son married? I have people in rural areas telling me that we worry even more now about boys getting married than girls because, you know, and in some areas of North India where there's more of a gender imbalance due to sex selective abortions and things there is a shortage of women to go around um and so that is one issue it's not always a man's choice to be single um although you know there's a few you know i've read a collection of essays on these fun single men having fun you know in cities with their free life um but the other thing that I think is even harder sometimes for single men or men who don't marry let's say they might be gay, identify as gay and they're not marrying then for women, is there's even more pressure on men to carry on the patriline. So even more pressure to um, bring in a wife, bear children for the sake of their parents, they owe it to their parents to carry on the patriline, and then maybe to provide old age care to their parents. So interestingly, women, um, a a lot of parents are worried about getting women married because they're worried that it's their responsibility to do that, to help care for their daughter and give her security, economic security and um, old age security. Uh, But she's not responsible for carrying on the patriline. So in some ways, women are freer than men for that. Um, obligation. So that makes it easier. But I would say that one thing I find much harder for women than men in India for single women is just that there's much more control over women's sexuality. So there is less um, scrutiny of men's movements, what they're doing outside. I have a colleague at Brandeis who studies queer men's public life in Mumbai and, you know, having fun, having sex, you know, in public and, you know, having so many sexual partners and just being out in the streets and, you know doing these fun things it's much just much harder for women to have that access to the public life um, and sexual freedom
0: yeah it's so interesting to think what singlehood does to gender uh, to sort of reverse that question and ask you know how uh, questions of sexuality uh, respectability femininity masculinity how they play out differently You know, through the experience of singlehood. Um, And then also sort of a question on kinship. And this speaks to me uh, uh, quite deeply because it's something that I'm thinking about right now in my own work um, on putting families together, doing the work of kin work, uh, what makes you know f- f- how to think about how care uh, material goods um, uh, uh, everyday labor makes families and it's so interesting when you speak about how women who are single are kind of dislocated in these kinship models they could be providing care and labor and maybe even material uh, uh, you know m- m- income but still they are not fit they're not able to claim kinship uh, and uh, that kind of fractured kinship is this is a, It was a very new way for me um, uh, to to see it, and yeah, that was quite wonderful. So maybe if you want to speak a little more about that,
1: yeah, I'm um, I'm glad that struck you. That was my that was new for me too to discover. So I think my own personal favorite chapter in the book is the one I call "A Daughters and Sisters Care," which focuses on just the kinds of things you just were describing. And um, I wasn't really expecting to learn all I learned. That I convey in that chapter too. So the ideology and is that um, families will take care of it, it, unmarried it's, its members, you know. So you know, it's supposed to take care of older parents, sons, a daughter too, forever if she doesn't get married. Or let's say there's some spinster aunt somewhere. She doesn't have any place to live. There's going to be some kin to take care of her, and that's the ideology. And it sometimes works. And about half of, about exactly half of the women I focused on in this study, who I got close to, and uh, 54 people I counted as as key interlocutors and half of them lived with their natal kin their whole life and um, and for many of those the relationships were wonderful and they felt like they they're helping out in the household the people there needed them and loved them especially as long as their parents are alive often many of them feel like oh i love my father better than i would love any husband anyway and you know and they're signing the house over in my name so that i'll be secure after they die i mean it often works out well but it, it, it doesn't need to like that's luck or chance. One thing that really struck me is how the kinship is set up system so much that the women are supposed to be out marrying the girls and daughters and sisters. And that's how they create secure kinship is to get married. And so if they don't get married, there is not necessarily any secure kinship for them. And I, and I knew quite a few people who fit into that norm, especially after their parents die, that their brothers and sisters-in-law don't want to care for them. And maybe why should they? But in some cases, these women sacrificed so much for their families, and the reason they didn't get married is because their families needed their care, labor, and their work—the money from their work. So this especially would happen in poor families, some rural families, and some East Bengal refugee families. Um, and they worked and worked for these families, um, got all their sisters and married and. Um, cared for their parents, and then in the end feel like they have no one who wants them anymore, no one to give them love, no one to give them monetary support, no one to be really their own. And so it's hard for several of these people just to to feel so alone once they become adults.
0: Yeah. What was especially, what was especially like cruel to say, is that um, they're being punished within these kinship models for not having married out and secured a legitimate form of kinship. But it is so, um, it's so disheartening to see this. Happening to single women, in light of all the evidence that we have, of what happens to married women, and you know, they're promised, they're they're punished because they they didn't get married. But even within marriage, women continue to the the, the struggle to secure kinship is a is a continuing one, um, and the punishment meted out to single women is. Um, Tethered to this idea of uh, the perfect kinship that will come through marriage, uh, but we know from scholarship that that doesn't happen either. So it was it was quite interesting to see it in light of of what we know happens within marriages.
1: You're exactly right. It's like there's this catch twenty two. So. You can't be secure without marrying, but marriage itself is so insecure often. I mean, that also sometimes works just like being with your parents forever. might work that, that often works well, of course, but really often doesn't. And that's one reason some of the women did kind of choose, you know, some of them very purposefully, others sort of, you know, not to marry because they had seen so many bad marriages and they thought it was vulnerable and they don't know what will happen once they marry. And, um, will they be able to still visit their natal kin if they want or keep working if they want? Uh, so yeah. So the thing is, yeah, what I basically learned, it can, it can be hard to be single, but it's also hard to be married. So it's, um, <laughs> the, the, we need broader social change, I guess. Um, and then it's hard to be totally alone in, in India too. And in many countries, because there's less, um, like in the US, a lot of people live alone. It, it, if you look at the U S census, there's, um, it's one of the larger categories now. I can't remember 20% or 24% of households are single person households. So there's a lot of housing options. There's some social cultural familiarity. Just think, okay, I'll just make it on my own and I'll have good friends or I could have lovers or um, things like that. And there's just fewer housing options, especially for the non-super elite in India to live alone. So that makes it just more of a precarious situation. Most people feel more familiar and comforted if they have some close kin they can live with.
0: Um, Also, another thing that struck me was um, uh, that your informants were not um, uh, speaking to you about caste. Um, which is interesting because a lot of uh, researchers would say that m- maybe they're not encountering caste in urban re- urban fieldwork, but the area where they do encounter caste quite strongly is in marriage and family making. Um, so it was interesting that when we're looking at its opposite, uh, caste doesn't come up so much in field conversations that...
1: Yeah, that's interesting to think of that as one of the main reasons why. Because if they're not talking about marriage, then maybe they didn't have to talk about caste as much. Because they're not talking about trying to marry within your caste or endogamous caste unions. Um, I mean the other thing is is that another reason maybe people didn't talk about caste as much for me is because I was a foreigner American, um, thinking that I sometimes I people find people think that um, you know, either it's a sort of a bad thing or a secret that why should I talk with her that much about or um, expecting that I would see things that I didn't see. So I don't need to talk about this because of course she knows. So uh, it's not, um, you know, I don't, I don't entirely trust at all that cast wasn't more important than I saw it to be. But the thing that really, really jumped out to me was social class issues, for one, because it's so obvious to see if someone's like living in a mud hut in a village area that doesn't even have a real roof and doesn't have enough food versus, you know, having a three-story beautiful house in Calcutta where you can sip whiskey on the uh, veranda. I, the, the class differences are so obvious. And then it also came up in people's stories because the few of my key informants who had a kind of a mismatched class status within their own self um, that they had achieved a kind of social class far beyond their own family background natal family background meant that they basically couldn't marry because there wouldn't be a man who matched so they couldn't marry into an elite family because that elite guy wouldn't want this rural background poor villager person even if she acts elite now and she has a phd but they couldn't really marry into a poor village family either with that much Education. So there were a few people like that who, where class was, it made me realize how marriages are. I know there's a lot of talk about how marriage has to be within similar caste people in India. And according to many people still think that that's important, but also um, a similar social class background. You know, when many parents in India say, oh, well, I don't care about caste. I just want someone with a good family background. And good family background often does kind of mean caste, but it definitely also means class and education and things like that way of speaking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to hear more from you about your friendship with Midhavi because it's so present in the research and it's so refreshing to also think of friendship as a method and the, also the politics of friendship. And throughout the book, you look like you're having so much fun in your conversations with Midhavi. So maybe if you could speak a little about about that friendship and how it started to become so present in your research and writing.
1: Yeah she um it, I mean the book wouldn't have emerged without her in the same way at least um and it wouldn't have been as meaningful for me an experience at all to do the work and to write and we're still very close we're hoping to we're now what's happening about planning a trip to paris and things like that so um Let's see. Well, we met just by chance. I mentioned this in the book, but we met in um, Calcutta in a market buying tie eyed house coats. <laughs> and I, she was like holding up this beautiful house coat in the market in Calcutta. She was visiting Calcutta. And I thought, oh, my daughter might like that. So I went there too, and I was speaking with the guy in Bengali, the shopkeeper. And she's like, "How do you speak Bengali?" And I mentioned, and I said, "Oh, I'm studying single women here." And she said, "Oh, you should study me." So that's how we met, uh, just by chance. And um, but we shared uh, we share a lot in common. I'm about the same age, um, both professors, feminists. Um, really, really love healthy organic foods when i visit her i mean she cooks me these weird things that i love you know like boiled peanuts and you know boiled cabbage with ground you know poppy seeds on it but you know whatever she cooks me all these super super healthy tasty things um and we just have fun together and she's very very insightful and smart Um, and she wanted to meet more single women herself. She was yearning for friends, so she would help. I would go back to the U.S., but she would help find more people for me to meet when I came back and um, introduce me to them and hang out often, and she was um, good at asking people questions, too, because she wanted to know, Um, and sometimes personal questions that I might not have felt as comfortable asking as directly, like, you know, how was it not to have sex your whole life? You know, was that difficult for you? And uh, things like that. And, um, you know, wasn't there any guy you ever liked or, uh, and it was just fun to hang out with her and we learned a lot from each other. So we still share WhatsApp messages, you know, every week and chat with each other. Um, and so, yeah, I couldn't have done without her and I wanted to have her story go throughout. She, her story is relevant to almost every chapter and it was fun. And a few other people I got to know well, it was fun to hang out with them as well. So on my other research on older people, I liked hanging out with older people, but we couldn't go out and do things as much usually. They often felt more homebound. And um, yeah, so to be able to go, I went on a trek with one woman up in the Himalayas and you know went out to cafes
0: and stuff. So it was fun for me. Hmm. I really liked uh, your sort of centering of the friendship that you made with your informants because so many times that... We, we don't acknowledge how much uh, affinity, personal affinity and friendship, how, how important that is in how field relationships get shaped and what field work then looks like. And it was really nice to see it uh, foregrounded in your in, in your book. Um, so maybe then just continuing um, on this theme, uh, would you like to speak more about your fine, your sort of your chapter on pleasure and happiness and joy and, you know, everyday everyday joys, um, which is which which was a lovely chapter to read, but it was also such an intelligent thing to put towards the end of the book because it's the book's finishes on a slightly celebratory note, but it's a very nuanced kind of celebrating, very different from the choice literature that you start the book uh, by critiquing. Uh, but then it pushes us towards this kind of positive opening, but a very different one. Um, so, which I quite enjoyed both its placement and also what the chapter says. Well, yes, I almost I wasn't sure if I would even have that
1: chapter, um, but I'm glad I did include it because I didn't feel like I had as much materials as I wanted on things like pleasure. So that chapter is called Pleasure, Friendships and Fun. And um, I, I know a lot of people were telling me about the hardships in their lives. Uh, but these days, for one, in anthropology, we're trying to go beyond only a very simplistic and kind of only dark anthropology and and and. Um, some of my colleagues had a nice collection of essays on fun, moja, and, and, uh, or maza in Hindi, I guess. Um, so I thought, okay, I should include these materials. And one of my daughters also was just really, really interested in the materials because I was telling her, well, I want to write about pleasure, but actually there's all these ways that it's really hard to have pleasure or you can't have fun or, you know, Maida had to sell her car because everyone thought, why should a single woman have a car? And my daughter was really interested in these things. And she said, oh, no, if I were a student, I'd want to read that stuff, yeah, write about it, Mom. So, so I included that chapter, um, but I still feel a little um, maybe disappointed that a lot of that chapter emphasizes obstacles to pleasure, friendships, and fun. So, I do want to, I, I, I do like to convey that there's possibilities for all those positive things too. And sometimes single women have an easier time achieving them than married women. So, even if there's obstacles in single women's lives, I mean, a lot of married women in certain marriages can't go out and hardly do anything you know, fun. And their mother-in-law or their husband will be telling them, you know, come back in. You know, it's harder for me to go and get tea with a young married woman than it would be with a single woman usually. Um, But some of the obstacles are that I do think that a lot of the women I was hanging out with were socialized not to um, as girls and women not to pursue pleasure for their own sake. So um, you can if you want to indulge in something, if you're with your kids or your husband, you're doing it for them. So if you wanna get some nice street snacks or buy a nice TV or some pillows for your house, or, um, oh, my kids are here, I need to feed them. And then you get to have some too. And um, sometimes when I would give single women gifts who were religious, they often had a deity, Gopal, the baby Krishna in their house. And they're like, oh, how nice. He'll really enjoy this chocolate. Let me give him some chocolate. Then I can have some, too. But uncomfortable just accepting it for themselves. And I I just think a lot of women um, are socialized that way. So it was hard for them to claim pleasure and fun and friendships on their own. And then a lot of women said that my friendships mainly were from when I was a child, I had all these girlfriends, but now they all got married. So now they can't really be my friend anymore. Um, But some women do achieve, you know, wonderful friendships. Uh, One group of women um, always goes on this trip once a year together. Most of them are lesbian women, a few heterosexual women, join in and they you know go on a trip somewhere take a train drink you know eat yummy foods chat and laugh and uh so yeah so i think it's really important to consider and i do think in some ways single women have an easier time indulging in a lot of those fun things than a lot of married women do
0: Yeah. And in what ways do you think the fun and pleasure and merrymaking of never married women is different from those of unmarried women who are maybe under 35 or, uh, but not married? Well,
1: um, from what I know, so I'm kind of oldish now myself, so I'm not hanging out as much with the kind of cosmopolitan let's say delhi mumbai uh young singles crowd but that's another big category of single like a local meaning of single in india these days is um, young women and men living in metros who can go out drinking and partying and having fun totally and i i've been told by my students and others that that's a big group of people and i've read some novels about it too there's one novel, Always Single, and a few other like novels about, you know, going out, drinking, having sex, and, you know, maybe I'll get married one day. Um, so I do think that especially for the more urban, cosmopolitan, elite people, it seems to be that there is an emphasis on, you know, freedom to have fun and pleasure in urban life for women and men both. And I like the like why loitering movement, Shilpa Padke and others had this why loitering and it's like women, young women, old women, anyone, and men should have access to public space, should be able to have fun in public space. So I think that's an important movement in India. And I was focusing on people, I was interested in people who weren't gonna later get married who were above 35. So they were not participating in that kind of life so much. Uh, But I think it might be an important new trend developing.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and finally, I wanted to also hear from you about uh, your writing process, because what is so striking about your writing is just how clear and accessible your writing is. And uh, maybe if you could share a little about how you write, how you go about, um, you know, um, moving from field notes and recordings to the final written page.
1: Well, it's hard to always, you know, know for sure how that happens. But for me, um, This book and my one other book, um, Aging in the Indian Diaspora, that focused some of the main materials in that book were focused on people moving into old age homes in India. And this book were the easiest two pieces of writing in my life, I think, because um, I felt like the stories of the people were very compelling. And I had the opportunity to write close to the time that I finished a lot of the field work. It it just happened to be that Sarah could do a long period of field work because of sabbatical or research grant. And then I didn't immediately rush into teaching and I had some time. So if stories are fresh in my mind, um, I want to get them out. I feel like this urgency, like to get them out. And I, and I enjoy actually writing then if you have, have to go back to some years old field notes and look for some quotes Uh, that's tedious (laughs) but so if the stories are fresh and they seem vibrant and compelling and that the people i spoke to themselves kind of want their story heard and say oh we're misunderstood actually i I wish you would write about us you know yeah do write this that helps motivate me definitely and then the other thing is in terms of clearness and accessibility over the years um i think i have gotten to be a much better editor of my own and other writing other people's writings i think through teaching writing for years. And one of the main things I try to do is have fewer words. So even if the first version is more long-winded, I'm really good at (laughs) cutting out some of the extra words, (laughs) making it as short as, even if I can see one word to cut, like, oh, that's worth it. So I try to do that. Um, And then wait, the other thing I'll say about writing this book is I wrote it during the pandemic when there were not that many other distractions. So I know You know, people had a hard time in the pandemic, but for me, that first year when I was writing this book was looking back one of the more selfishly pleasurable years of my life, because I couldn't do all the things I would normally do, travel, go out of the house. Uh, And I was on research leave. I had a sabbatical or grant that gave me teaching off, and I just wrote my book at home.
0: But going back to your first point, it is, um, it's is—it's very true. Fresh is such a good word to describe your writing because the stories really do jump out of the page and it feels so alive in the writing. Uh, and uh, now that you describe it, it really looks like the stories were just ready inside you, waiting to come out, and uh, you were the sort of perfect conduit for that. Um, so, yes, it's very fresh, the writing. And I, through the course of the book, I feel like I've met all of them, all of your informants, and that was really, really wonderful. Um Maybe just to conclude, if you'd like to speak a little about what you're doing now and uh, what your next research project will be like, what what more field work you're doing, uh, I we'd all love to hear where where you're going next.
1: Okay, so yes, yeah, so now I'm going back to my kind of long-term uh, focus on experiences of aging. I still like to connect that to stories, ideas of personhood, what it is to be a person, the human condition, things like that, Um, I'm looking at how ideas about like healthy aging or so-called successful aging um, are playing out among different communities, both in the US and in India. So the key premise of this big healthy aging hype is that individuals have the responsibility to make their own aging good, um, to kind of ward off bad things, you know, ward off dependence or wrinkles or pain and and through lifestyle and attitude and exercise, um, I can make my aging positive and sort of stay young forever. That's a really popular paradigm these days in gerontology and in public health literature and popular literature. And so I am chatting with older people in the United States, both in the Boston area. And I just went to Arkansas in the South, and I'm talking to some people in Alabama, also in Florida, in the Southern United States where Christianity is much stronger. And um, and seeing how these ideas um, operate there, like for people who have really, really strong belief in heaven and that also God determines the stage of life, how long it will be, the lifespan, God determines so much but how people integrate still, they'll say, well, but God gave me this mind and this body. I'm going to still work on it to be healthy because God gave it to me, even if he controls when I die, but still, you know, so I'm interested in how people negotiate their like ideas about religious faith with this ideal about individual agency and control over aging. And then in India too, before the pandemic, I started talking with people about these issues and I have a research assistant who was able to connect with me with some other, um, People in India during the pandemic to chat with virtually. And so, um, you know, healthy aging is really a big deal now in India, too, among many people. But some people really wonderfully critique um, uh, the, the, the West or say, well, they, they put a label on it now, but we always cared about health, you know, or why do you have to go to a gym just to be healthy? You know, a lot of people have really nice cl- critiques of the West, which I enjoy. Um, they'll say like, Oh, well you guys need all that because you eat burgers and go to booze parties. But we, you know, we, we, we just have, we eat vegetables. Anyway, we like vegetables, you know? So, um, so so I, I'm enjoying that project. So how people of uh, various social classes in India are engaging with these ideas of, of whether you control your own aging, whether you should try to be healthy as you age, um, and how people interpret the impermanence of the human condition. I mean, no one's going to live forever. So whether you would kind of accept aging or fight it, I'm interested in all those things. So I also hope to showcase stories and in trying to put it together into a book.
0: Oh, how fascinating. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, and thanks for taking our time to speak with me about your book, uh, Being Single in India, which I enjoyed reading very much. And I've been in conversation with lots of friends and other scholars who have also learned so much from it. So thank you very much for writing it. And uh, thanks again for uh, speaking with me. Thank you.
1: It's been um, lovely talking with you and your insightful read of the book.
0: Uh, thanks a lot.